The Pellicle Podcast is sponsored by the wonderful folks at Rode Microphones. We've used Rode mics to make this podcast since our very first episode. I'm a big fan of the NT1, their vintage voice studio condenser, which we use for our voiceovers and narration. Recently, I've also turned to their reporter handheld mic, which is perfect for capturing interviews in the field. This introduction is being recorded using their best-selling NT-USB Mini, plus a little EQ and compression. It's a brilliant little USB mic that's perfect for improving your audio, especially your video calls. You just stick it on your desk, plug in your headphones, and sound more like you're in a studio. The NT-USB Mini is available now, and it's just £99 RRP. Go check it out at Rode.com. Thanks again to Rode, and now, it's on with the show. Hello, welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Curtis. Now then, I've got a long overdue episode for you. Today, I'm going to talk about my book, Modern British Beer, that came out on August the 12th. My original plan was to record this episode prior to the book's launch and have it come out on the same day as the book. That would have been a really good idea, wouldn't it? But the actual promotion of the book and other work and the return of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately and really enjoying, that got in the way of me being able to sit down for an hour and record me talking about what the book's about, what it means and what I hope it means to you folks. So I'm going to do that today. It's a little bit different to an episode I recorded a couple of months ago where I talked about my process of writing. It's not going to be the same as that. This is going to be about the book itself. But before I talk about modern British beer, I want to celebrate a little bit of awards success we had at the North American Guild of Beer Writers Awards the other weekend. Pellicle picked up five awards thanks to the amazing efforts of some of our contributors, including Owen Walsh, Sam Akadari and David Jesudison. Thank you so much for your hard work, folks. That's so wonderful to see it deservedly pick up those awards. And I'm happy to say I picked up a couple of awards too. First, for my article on St. Mars of the Desert. And secondly, for this podcast, which picked up bronze in the best podcast category. I'm over the moon about that because it's an American awards. So it would have been up against so many American beer podcasts. And to come third in such a hotly contested category, that's a great feeling. So thank you to the judges. Thank you to the North American Guild of Beer Writers. It's an amazing feeling. And thank you, the listeners, for tuning in every week. It's really appreciated. Now, before we continue on with the rest of the show, I do like to check in, and I haven't done that in a little while. When I say check in, I mean chew through some of the topics that have been happening in beer or cider or wine lately. And there's one thing in beer that's been dominating the news cycles and the discourse online, and that has been McKellar and breweries pulling out of McKellar beer celebration following accusations of an abusive workplace culture and sexism. Now there's been a lot of this happening lately and I've spoken of it briefly before and I don't want to get too deep into it. I want to focus on McKellar and why this matters. But essentially earlier this year, 
on a number of Instagram accounts, starting with a lady called Brienne Allen, who's at Rat Magnet on Instagram, started sharing victim stories of sexism and abuse in the workplace. And it just spiralled and spiralled and turned into this reckoning. One of the breweries that was accused in this time was Mikella, the famous Danish brewer that rose to fame when Shelton Brothers, a former now defunct US importer, imported its Beer Geek Breakfast Stout and it became this hot beer on rate beer and they became one of the catalyst breweries really of what you would call the modern craft beer movement. And their festival, Mikella Beer Celebration Copenhagen, or MBCC, became this flagship event for a certain type of drinker, drinkers looking for the hottest rated new breweries in the world, including many that would come over and do come over from the United States. Now, following these stories being published on Instagram around May and June 2021, a protest started in Denmark against Mikella and more and more Mikella employees came out with their stories of how they had a bad time working there. Some of them anonymously, but some of them, such as Megan Stone, who was at Mikella San Diego, went on the record publicly. And on July the 1st, Kate Bernot, a fantastic writer, wrote a report of this with on-the-record testimony for Good Beer Hunting. So that's important to know that this was in the press. This was an officially reported on thing that was in the news cycle from July the 1st. And there was quite a lot of talk about it at the time in July. But like these things do, it faded away. But at the start of October, as we approached NBCC, what Mikella do with this festival is they don't announce the attending breweries until right up until the, almost the eve of the festival, a couple of weeks before. And when they revealed that list, there were breweries on there, some who had been accused in these Instagram stories and done nothing. Some who had made efforts to produce codes of conduct and bettered themselves in light of the allegations that had emerged, including brewing this beer called Brave Noise, which Brienne Allen started. And to brew that beer, to be part of this collaboration, started at Notch Brewing in Salem, Massachusetts. You have to publish your code of conduct and send it to Brienne so that you are legit in terms of doing this collab. And some breweries who had done that were going to McKellar. And McKellar had not really atoned or done much at all in light of these accusations. In terms of the media, they were releasing very rigid statements rather than doing any on-the-record interviews themselves. So it was a big unresolved mess. And there came this call online after these breweries were announced to, like, what are you doing? We're trying to change the industry for the better for women and minority communities. And when I say minority communities, it's not a great term, but it's when I say it, I mean black people in the beer industry, Asian people, LGBTQ people, people who aren't white men, essentially, in beer, have been asking breweries to do better. Now, there's been a lot of people tell me that they don't like seeing the way this is carried out online, which I've listened to and I've nodded along with gone, yeah, you know what? Sometimes I look at these Instagram stories and they're harrowing and it's not nice to look at. And, you know, maybe there's a better way to do it. But actually, there isn't. That's what I've figured out. Personally, I'm through the shocked stage and I feel a bit more comfortable is not the right word, but prepared to listen and act on what I'm hearing. 
in the knowledge that the reason this is playing out on Instagram the way it is, is because they feel like there's no other avenue to be heard. And so they've taken to social media. They wouldn't have needed to do this if breweries had listened in the first place. And women and minority communities in beer have been calling out for this kind of change for 10, 20, 30 years. Look at someone like Melissa Cole in the UK scene who's been banging this drum for 20 years. Look at a brewer like Sarah Barton at Brewster's Brewery in Grantham who features in Modern British Beer who's been a brewer since 1988. This isn't a new thing and people have been asking the industry to change for such a long time and so because no one has been really listening they are now going online and they are screaming and people are hearing them and that's what happened to me with NBCC. I watched as the latest set of stories unfolded in the list of breweries. And I'm like, hang on, folks, come on. If you're going to go to this festival to have a good time without really genuinely holding this business accountable for not just a few online accounts, but stuff that's in the news, on the record testimony that people wouldn't be doing if it wasn't true because they would get sued for libel. We're talking about victims of workplace abuse and sexism who are asking the industry not to participate with a brewery they don't think has done enough to really demonstrate that they want to change and make not just their environment, but the beer industry, bearing in mind McKellar are a beer industry pioneer, to do better by women and minority communities in beer. There are a number of UK breweries that were involved. Some pulled out quite quickly and gracefully, like the Colonel, who are not very online. I would not describe them as a very online brewery. They released a short statement and went, yep, we've looked at it, we're not going to go. And then three Hillsbury in Surrey, a couple of days after that, on their own decided, yep, we're going to pull out, this isn't right for us. But what happened next was quite distressing. I thought so anyway. In the eight UK breweries banded together had a lot of meetings and then released a joint statement and said, we're going to go, but we're going to hold Mikkel accountable for you. We're going to hold a meeting and we're going to invite these victims of abuse to the meeting and we can all hammer it out and then have a nice festival knowing that we have made some real progress. And this was really bad because what these breweries did, although I don't doubt their intentions were genuine and noble, but they decided to centre themselves rather than the victims and the women and minority communities that need to be centred in this. They wanted to hold a forum on the terms of the alleged abuser of Mikella on the eve of their beer festival rather than neutral ground. This whole thing needs to be organised by the accusers, by the victims so that it's safe, so that it's on their terms, so that people are listening to them. And these eight British breweries, which I won't name, but you can go online and look at them, they decided to try and centre themselves in that. And that didn't sit right with me. So I reached out to them all, as did many people, many angry people, industry peers and friends and said, look, this isn't the way to do it. And it got through to them. 24 hours later, they retracted. It felt like a watershed moment in beer. No doubt they really had invested a lot of money and time in going to this festival. 
but in pulling out, they said, right, okay, we are listening. It was an important first step, hopefully one of many, where the voices in beer, and I'll say again, the women and minority communities, I'm sorry for using that catch-all term, but it's in the interest of brevity and trying to include everyone, are going to be listened to. Here's to taking that next step. It's interesting to me that Michaela is still considered to be this trailblazer, this pioneer. People have told me that MBCC is this flagship event. And I'm looking at it and going, not really. Yes, it's a lot of hype breweries pouring together at a beer festival. But beer festivals happen all over the world all the time with lots of interesting breweries. What makes... NBCC more interesting than a local camera festival supporting local small breweries working as hard as they can to make the best beer they can. A bit of hype, a bit of FOMO. But actually there's not that much difference between them. The fact that it's been held up as this flagship event has escalated these problems because it is by holding them up it makes them less accountable or in theory it shouldn't. But the reality is Mikella, for all the important stuff they've done in the industry in terms of growing craft beer, you know, I remember picking up bottles of green gold and 1000 IBUs back in the day and being really excited by those beers. But Mikella is a contract brewer that sells beer in Marks and Spencers. It's not as thrilling and as exciting as a lot of people hold it up. But I have nothing against the fact that that is part of what they do Lots of breweries sell in supermarkets. Lots of breweries don't have their own brewery and brew under contract at another facility. It's just how this industry works. But the way McKellar has marketed itself and been held up in that regard kind of made them more difficult to pin down on this. At least I feel that way. They've got a lot of support, a lot of fans. You know, I can imagine if you're a drinker at this festival, the MBCC, 46 breweries have pulled out. And you'd probably be very angry at those breweries because you wanted to drink their beer. But I think it's important to bear in mind that this wouldn't have happened had Michaela listened to these victims, these voices that were screaming online and acted on that responsibly, then we wouldn't be in this situation. You know, I don't blame any individual that's in Copenhagen. It's happening this week, although by the time you're listening to this, it would have been a couple of weeks ago. But I don't begrudge anyone who has gone to Copenhagen to have a bit of a party, have a few drinks as an individual, because what are two years we've had? Like, how can you blame anyone for trying to find a little bit of fun and relaxation in this tumultuous time? But I don't feel the same for the businesses involved in creating an experience that should be safe and welcoming to everyone. But the responsibility lies with Mikella. And any blame for not getting the experience that you expect at this event, it's on them really for not acting, not listening. And these voices, like I said, and I'll use the word again, were screaming. But I'm not calling for a boycott. I think it's really important to say that. And I think this is a really good way to start talking about modern British beer. The last line, although it's not probably that sensible to reveal the last line of a book 
But it ends by saying that beer in the UK and anywhere in the world really can only truly be considered modern when it is welcoming to everyone. The start of the book is about my philosophy of beer. I talk a little bit about my experience, about how I got into beer, about my dad's experience, about how he got into beer, because we all view beer through our own individual lens. And it's really important to remember that my experience is not the same as your experience, is not the same as the next person's experience. We all exist on this spectrum of beer. And it's my theory that no matter where you are on that spectrum, your experience doesn't or shouldn't take away from someone else's. And I call this spectrum the broad spectrum of joy. I call it the broad spectrum of joy because for me, the point of drinking beer is that it is something that makes you happy. Whether it's something that's right in front of you, sparkling in a glass and you give it your full attention, smelling the aroma, tasting it, really experiencing that beer. Sometimes if you love beer like I do, it's great to give your whole attention to the glass or can or bottle in front of you. But sometimes that beer is to your side or behind you and it forms part of a conversation with friends or bridging chapters in the book you're reading cancelling the silences in conversation. It's a delicious, joyous thing, but it's so perfect in that moment that you're not actually thinking about it. It's just this little thing you pick up and sip and mm, that's nice. And then down and back to what you were concentrating on before. You can experience beer in any of these ways, any combination of these ways. Something I realised in thinking about this broad spectrum of joy philosophy and how I used to experience beer is how I used to When I was a little bit, shall we say, evangelical about modern craft beer, I dismissed things like Lager and Cascale and Camera, who actually published the book. But I used to think that they didn't get it and I was onto this new thing and they were wrong about what they thought about my new thing. And I failed to realise that I was being reductive. I was minimalising their experience for the benefit of mine. Without realising I could take my hoppy American IPA and enjoy that and celebrate its deliciousness and provenance and what it gives to the culture of beer. And then someone can be elsewhere on the spectrum of joy and have a pint of bitter conditioned in cask served via hand pull that gives them the same joy. And neither of these things take away from that. And it's the same if you take a smoothie beer or a pastry stout, or a New England IPA. That takes nothing away from a great pint of mild, or a German Hellas, or Czech Pilsner. All of these beers, all of these experiences, exist in this spectrum of joy, this circle. It's not linear. And no matter where you pull the joy from on that spectrum, it should not impact that of someone else. And that's where the book begins, establishing this is how I feel about beer now. As someone who used to be a lot more confrontational and has realised that has not been often helpful in helping other people enjoy beer as much as I do. 
whether that's saying you've got to try this to people who would never like something like that or attacking people who like something different to I do. Okay, so yeah, sometimes I go online and argue about sparklers for a bit of fun. But actually, I don't care if you like your beer sparkled or unsparkled. I know what I like. I like a nice, cool pint of sparkled bitter. But that takes nothing away from the people who don't like that tiny little modifer in their beer experience. It's why beer is so wonderful. It's why we can talk about it. It's why I've written this whole book about it. So that's where I start. And you know what? Some people will go to Marks and Spencers and buy a McKellar beer and it will make them happy. And I don't begrudge them for that. That's why I think calling for boycotts is not the right approach. Providing people with the information so they can make a moral choice on the products they buy, absolutely. But you won't find me anymore going saying, I don't think you should drink this to someone. I've tried that in the past. And like I say, it's a reductive process. It's not helping anyone. That energy would be better spent saying, here is some information. You can do with it what you want. So once I'd established this philosophy, my philosophy of beer, broad spectrum of joy, the book then moves on to trying to define modern British beer. And this was really important for me because we've been arguing about craft beer for God knows how long now. It feels like an eternity. And the term craft beer and who it applies to, the reason that conversation has kind of spiraled out of control and the term craft has been used as a marketing term and not necessarily always refers to the beer or is accurate regarding the beer it's talked about. For me, I can define craft beer in my eyes very simply. It's a craft because brewing is the fusion of science, engineering and art and creativity. And craft sits at the centre of those three things. And that's why craft is such a useful term to describe a lot of the beer being produced these days. It is a craft. So because the term craft beer has become so nebulous, I thought it was really important to define my idea of modern British beer, of modernity in beer and what that means before we talk about the beers themselves. So the way the book works is after I've defined my idea of modernity, it goes into 86 essays on beer. It was meant to be 80, but there were some breweries I had to fit in. The long list of breweries was about 300 long. But essentially, it's a series of short stories that when you link them together, it forms a narrative. Each beer is a case study. It's a different style or it's got a different story. It's from a different time. And it provides a piece of the great mosaic of modern British beer that I try and define in chapter two. And I came up with this five point definition. And you know what? It's not perfect. And I consider it a malleable thing. I think when you define something, you have to take the plunge and go, okay, this is what I think. And then once that's out there, it can be shaped and molded by other ideas as well. So I didn't want to shy away from doing a definition because at least I would have that to start with rather than just putting this nebulous term modern British beer out into the ether and seeing the same thing as craft beer happen. I try not to use the words craft beer in the book because it's about modern beer. It's about my idea, really. So I came up with this five point plan. The first one is modern British beer should be invested in its agriculture. This is something I'm 
thinking about a lot of the moment. The fact that beer is not just something that is brewed, but it's something that's grown in the ground. You'll hear me say that a lot. Beer starts as barley and other cereals such as wheat and oats and rye, but mostly barley and hops, yeast cultivated in a lab, water pulled from reservoirs, products still largely of the land. And when I say modern British beer is interested in its agriculture, it means it's not just interested in the process of stuff being grown, it's interested in cultivating relationships with the people who grow it, with the people who process it, the maltsters, the distributors, the suppliers, being aware of that supply chain and the impact of that supply chain. You see that talked about in food writing. You see it talked about in coffee. You see it talked about in wine. You don't see any conversation about the impact of the supply chain in beer. And this is going to be a huge thing over the next few years as we open up this world. Where where does your glass come from? Where does your carbon dioxide come from? That sounds like a whole other episode that I'm going to have to record in the future, and I'll try. But as much as beer, modern beer, is invested in its agriculture, it's also invested in sustainability and the environment. And this should be a no-brainer. Brewing beer uses a lot of chemicals. It uses an immense amount of water It uses a lot of heat, a lot of energy. Brewing is massively impactful on the environment. Now, smaller brewers actually don't have that big an impact on the environment because, as I've discussed in other episodes of this podcast and elsewhere, 80% of the beer in this country anyway is produced by massive breweries who are using most of the energy. But still, every brewery should be thinking about sustainability in the wake of climate change, the catastrophe Every brewery should be considering sustainable energy, water use, recyclable packaging, trying to use as little energy as possible to make their beer. So modern British beer should be sustainable. Something else that became a huge thing in the book for me, the third point of five in my definition, is regionality and how important that is to modernity. Let's look at London as a case study here. When I moved to London in 2005, there were 10 breweries and some of them were very big breweries like Mortlake Brewery, which is closed down, that used to make Budweiser, for example. There weren't lots of little breweries. There's now 140 plus breweries in London. Most of them are very, very small. Most of them have tap rooms you can visit and some of them have beers that taste distinctly like their beers. The Colonel one of the most important breweries in the book. Their beers taste like Colonel beers. They taste like Bermondsey in South London. They taste like Spa Terminus where they're based. I don't know any other brewer that makes beers that taste like the Colonel. And actually I was thinking the other day that Partizan just down the road make beers that taste like Partizan beers. I couldn't find room for them in the book, but that's because the Colonel told that part of the story so well. And who else would you include? one of the most important breweries to have emerged in the UK in the last 15 years. But if you go up to Yorkshire and drink, or West Yorkshire, and drink a Mallinson's pint on cask, hoppy pale ales, they taste of West Yorkshire. If you drink black sheep beer fermented in Yorkshire squares, they have that North Yorkshire flinty mineral taste, a taste of a place. 
If you drink St. Austell Tribute in Cornwall, then it's going to taste of a Cornish beer. It uses Cornish barley. Regionality is returning in terms of flavour, and of course it is, because we've gone from a few hundred breweries to over 2,000. And so many breweries that came early on in this growth tried to make a mark by brewing the same thing as everyone else. For the majority of people outside of the beer fandom, I don't know if that's the right term, but outside of us enthusiasts, craft beer has come to mean a 5.4% hazy pale ale that's not very bitter, but tastes a bit like fruit juice. That's become this de facto, oh, that's craft. Whereas the reality of craft beer is it's about hundreds of different styles and experiences and flavours. But a homogeneity has been born from the pursuit of trying to do something different. Whereas I see the future of beer is in breweries defining themselves through flavours reflective of their place. Look at Utopian Brewery in Devon making amazing lagers using 100% English ingredients as an example. This is going to become such a huge thing over the next few years. And this ties back into agriculture and following that chain. What's happening in British agriculture in terms of some of the grains, the heritage barley, some of the English grown hops. This is improving and growing massively, rapidly. And these flavours will be reflective of that sense of place. And not just the flavour of the beers, but the people that live near the brewery and drink near it. And that brings me neatly onto the fourth part of my definition, which is that modern British beer should be rooted in its local community. This can mean a lot of things. On a basic level, it means the people that come and drink at that brewery or live nearby and celebrate this brewery as part of their local culture. But it also means being equitable. And this ties back in to what I was talking about earlier. It means being open to all people, to women, to black people, to Asian people, to the LGBTQ community, to everyone. That's just a handful of minority communities. But these people love beer as much as everyone else. And beer will only be modern if anyone can get into it and enjoy it. It sounds simple, doesn't it? It's not. It takes a lot of work. And that's something we all have to accept. It's challenging something that we have to accept with this Mikella thing. This is a challenging thing for beer culture, for drinkers, for the industry itself. And by accepting that challenge, embracing it really, and working through it, that's how real change happens. That's how beer becomes modern. I've written this book, Modern British Beer, And we're only really teetering on modernity. My definition, although I point out in the book, it's not a manifesto, it's just some ideas. Rather than it being where we are now, it's something that should be a little bit more aspirational. There is a fifth point to my definition, though. Something that gets overlooked and something that was really important for me to say is that modern British beer should be delicious. What is the point of drinking a beer if it doesn't taste nice? Beer is a food product to dumb it down to its most simplest form, but it's something we consume and it should taste nice. It costs a lot of money and by your standards, that beer should be tasty. Life's too short. You know, I was thinking back to the episode I did with Paul Jones from Cloudwater 
a few months ago. We talk a lot about Cloudwater's beers in that episode, and it's a real joy to talk about those beers. And I remember him after the interview saying to me, no one ever asks me about the beer. And I'm thinking, why? Like, your beers are delicious. I'm fascinated to know more about them. That's the point of it all, really, to drink delicious beer. It should be as simple as 0.5 delicious beer. But beer is far more complicated than that. It doesn't need to be, but it is. And I guess that's why I wrote a book on it. Anyway, with my definition established, with my philosophy of beer established, I felt I was able to then dig into the meat of the book, these 86 stories broken down by region, starting in Scotland and then working its way down through Yorkshire, the northeast, northwest, the Midlands, Wales, Northern Ireland, the southwest, the south, London and the southeast, gradually building this tapestry of modern beer culture in England. When I first started the book, I started in a very different way and I ended up scrapping most of the original intro because I realised I needed to establish this groundwork before I could go on. A bit of philosophy and a bit of definition of my idea. That had to be there before I could really talk about beers. It's worth noting that when you're reading the chapters on the beers themselves. Each beer is rooted in the idea of that philosophy of the broad spectrum of joy and the definition. Now, I will say not every point in that definition applies to every brewery. In fact, I would say that I don't think there is a brewery in the book where all five points of the definition apply to them. And that's because, like I say, it's aspirational. It's something we're working towards. But each beer is reflective of beer culture as it is now. This is something that I haven't really said before, but the book is meant to be read from cover to cover. I know a lot of people have been quite keen to dip in and pick their favourite beers, but the idea is you should read it like a story because they are designed to flow a bit like the tracks on an album. When I listen to music, I like listening to a full album. That's my favourite way to experience music. Rather than playlists or on shuffle, I like to pick a nice album and listen to it from beginning to end as the artist intended. And that's what I hope most of you will do with this book. I mean, once you've bought it, you can read it however you want. You can read it backwards for all I care. Like, it's your book. It's out of my hands now. You do what you want with it. But it's designed to be read from cover to cover. So do consider that because the choice of beers that I put in the book Although some of them are really obvious to me, beers I know and love and could tell their stories because they're sitting within me already, I basically brainstormed this list of nearly 300 beers and then gradually started to knock them off. Were there two beers that were too similar? Which one had more of a story to dig into? It meant some places got a bit overlooked. I've had a few people from Cambridge tell me why they know beers from Cambridge in the book. And you know what? Pastor were so close to getting in, but I had some mixed fermentation beers already. That's why Wilderness in Wales didn't get in. There's no beers in Essex in there, but I did have Leon Sea Brewery and Crouch Vale Brewers Gold, both on the long list, but I had to work through this. Kill my darlings, basically. Like, I want to put this in, but I can't. And I had to whittle down that list until I literally couldn't find any excuses to take those beers out anymore. And there are some beers that were challenging to include, especially Brewdog Punk IPA. 
because BrewDog were at the center of much of these stories around toxic workplace culture in the industry. I wanted to pull them out and at one stage a couple of other breweries as well. But thanks to the great guidance of my editors, Katie Button and Alan Murphy, who gave me the time and space to really consider it. There are breweries which I decided not to include in this book, breweries that had sold out to large multinationals because I felt that the multinationals that own them are not part of my definition of modern British beer. So by proxy, any subsidiaries in part or in full are not either. That was one way in which I took some brewery names out. But Brewdog, their story in terms of how British beer has developed since the turn of the century, it was too big of a monolith to ignore. And I'm glad I got to speak to Martin Dickey. I interviewed him for the book and felt like I had a lot better perspective on what really happens behind the scenes there. Honestly, I wish they'd talk about that more rather than the marketing you see online. I feel there's two very different pictures there. Anyway, I'm the one that has to go to bed at night and think about putting Brewdog in the book. Anyway, the final list of beers I think is hopefully representative of the philosophy and definition I put out at the start of the book. But other than that, I hope you find it entertaining. I hope it makes you thirsty. As much as I wanted to tell the story of how I think British beer culture has evolved over the past few years, I wanted to write a book that people enjoyed. This is important because a lot of people who pick up the book will already be really into their beer and they will find plenty of stuff to nod their head at and to shake their head at, I'm sure. But by making it a book that is also about the way these beers taste and where they're from and who makes them, I hope that people who have a passing interest in beer can pick it up and find it equally as enjoyable. I'm not of the belief that you can write one thing that appeals to everyone. That's impossible. That was never the aim. It's a book aimed at people who love beer. But some people who love beer are as madly into it as me or you. And some people have more of a passing interest. They're at a different place on the broad spectrum of joy. I think and I hope that they will take as much enjoyment from reading it as anyone else. Modern British Beer is not a book to be precious over. This is why I wanted to record this episode for when the book first came out on August the 12th. It's a book I want you to take to the pub, sling in your backpack, a book to spill beer over, something to get dog-eared and tatty because you're carrying it around, something you make notes in the margins and scrawl over, red pen on the bits you disagree with. I don't want anyone to keep it neat and tidy. This is a book that deserves to get battered, thrown around, You know, I carry my copy around with me in the hope that it picks up a few beer stains on its travels. I think that's important. That's as much a part of the culture of modern British beer as anything else. I've been too precious about beer over the years in my writing. Honestly, writing a book like this and putting my thoughts in order in this scale really helped me think about how my experience is not the same as other people's experience. I think that's something we forget. I think that's something social media makes us forget. Hopefully you might get a bit of that in reading it as well. The book's out now. It's produced by Camera Publishing. And I mentioned Katie Button and Alan Murphy, my editors there, who were absolutely fantastic in helping me produce this book. 
and letting my ideas run wild, letting me do the photography, letting me commission the amazing Tida Bradshaw to do that cover, which I wanted to not look like a beer book at all. And she did an amazing job of that. And there's loads of other people that are thanked in the sleeve notes. It's an amazing feeling to be a writer and to be able to do a book like this that's very personal and then to see people enjoy that too. So thank you if you've already picked up a copy. If you haven't, you can get it at the camera.org.uk shop or from loads of retailers. Loads of breweries and bottle shops have got copies now. So check with your local tap room or bottle shop. They might have some. And you can get it online from the big booksellers, who I won't name, but you know who they are. Let's make a deal. If you do buy it from a big online bookseller, you have to leave a review. That's the deal. Because if you do that, it helps the algorithm recommend the book to other people. And I'd be really appreciative of that. But yeah, there you go. Modern British Beer. It's out there. I'm excited. Tell me what you think. Email me, matthew at pellicalmag.com. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. And hey, I think it's about time I started thinking about doing another book. I'd like to. I think I've started something now and I'll keep going. Anyway, that was a big episode. On the McKellar stuff, I think it's important to take what I say with a pinch of salt. I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. I think it's really important to educate yourself and get online and read some of those articles. I will put a couple of links in the show notes just to save you scrambling around looking for the information. I'll put it right there for you. Do check out Kate Bernot's writing for Good Beer Hunting. I think that's really important. That stuff's on the record. And remember to listen and consider that the people who are online revealing these stories, sharing their trauma, because that's what they're doing. They're doing that this way because they don't feel like there's any other way to do it now. That's where we've got to in this discussion. So try and take that on board when you read it. And it can be challenging. This is a trigger warning, basically. If you do dig into some of the Instagram stories, they can be quite heavy. So go easy on yourself. Anyway, thanks as ever for tuning in. And a huge special thank you to our Patreon supporters. As ever, you keep this podcast and our website free for absolutely everyone who wants to listen to it or read it. Thank you. If you want to join them, you can go to patreon.com forward slash pellicalmag and sign up from as little as a pound a month. Our goal in 2022 at Pellicle, and when I say our, there are four of us. There's myself, my co-founder, Johnny Hamilton, Lily Waite, and Katie Mather, and we all run Pellicle together. We want to put our rates up in 2022 and pay our writers, photographers, and illustrators more money to produce the content that you enjoy reading. And if you subscribe on Patreon, you will help us achieve that goal. What a cool thing to be a fully reader-funded publication, or nearly fully. We've got to thank Hotburns and Black for their sponsorship as well. It's a cool thing to be still running Pellicle two and a half years on, and I'm very grateful for all that. Patreon.com forward slash PellicleMag. That's all from me this week, relatively short and sweet. But I'll be back soon with another episode where I'll be interviewing Mark Tranter, the founder of Burning Sky Brewery in Sussex. Until then. Mm-hmm.